welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Peter Rode, alongside Professor Jason Potts, Professor Sinclair Davidson, and Dr. Darcy Allen on Blockchain Meets Quantum. Welcome, everyone. Hello. 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 So I'd like to start with uh, by reading an excerpt from a recent post that you co-authored on blockchain finance in the quantum era, Peter, where you state, two of the most important technological advancements currently underway are the advent of quantum technologies and the transitioning of global financial systems towards cryptographic assets, notably blockchain-based cryptocurrencies and smart contracts. There is, however, an important interplay between the two, given that in due course, quantum technology will have the ability to directly compromise the cryptographic foundations of blockchain. And then you explore this interplay by building uh, some interesting financial models for quantum failure in various scenarios, including pricing quantum risk premiums. And you call this quantum crypto economics. And that is what we'd like to explore today. You have to have one of these sexy names to go with a, with a new field. Otherwise, it doesn't catch on. Um, so, yeah, we, we, uh, we came up with, with, with that idea uh, as a way of unifying the, the, these two fields, which um, uh, I think uh, it goes without saying that they're the two most important forefront fields. But the interplay here... Uh, is down at the foundation layer of the cryptographic primitives that we use in these uh, in these blockchain technologies, and, and that's where the compromising can take place. So that's what we're exploring with this. Yeah, it's a really fascinating topic, and I can't wait to dig into it. I guess for our listeners, can you peel us back to what is quantum computing for those that may not be as familiar? Yeah, so th this is one of those things that everybody tries to come up with a one-line answer to, but nobody ever succeeds because it's so nuanced that you can't actually summarize it down to a single sentence or a single paragraph. But ultimately, what it boils down to is exploiting the, the fundamental differences in physics at the quantum level. Um, and when you recognize that any computing device is a physical device, something that you have to physically construct. Then what that means is that information, the way that it's encoded and the way that it's processed is dictated by whatever those physical principles are. So classical computers encode information using digital information because that's how classical physics works. Things have particular values, a zero or one or whatever value you want. Uh, but in quantum physics, you have additional phenomena that you don't see at the classical level. And the two most important ones are the idea of superposition, whereby the state of something uh, can be in multiple values at the same time. So it's indeterminate until you measure it. That's where the, the whole Schrodinger's cat concept comes from. Uh, and the other idea is the one of entanglement, which is where you have multiple systems in a joint superposition. Uh, so if you consider information now where we're encoding things digitally, a single bit into a zero or a one, well, in the quantum case, it can be any sort of arbitrary combination of those in superposition. It can be zero and one at the same time. But that on its own isn't so exciting. It becomes more exciting when you move to multiple bits, because if you consider a bit string that has n bits in it, there are two to the power of n possible combinations, but you can have one at a time. Uh, if you were able to put them into 
uh, a maximal possible superposition, then in principle, you could have all two to the power of n combinations in superposition at once. Um, now, this, this often leads to the, the misconception that quantum computers are these parallel computers that process everything at once and give you all the answers at once. That's not the case because uh, like the Schrodinger's cat paradox, when you look at it, uh, you don't see all of the answers at once. It collapses onto one particular result. So that might immediately seem that it's pretty useless. So the extra step that people often miss here is that you process information in superposition. Then you have to do some sort of tricks that interfere all of those different components of the superposition together so that when you get a measurement result and it collapses down, it doesn't give you all the answers to everything, but it gives you something about all of the answers, some, some global property, they call it, of, of all of the possible answers. So that's sort of the gist of it. But what that means is that quantum computers are useful for certain very specific tasks that are amenable to being processed in that way uh, and not just anything. Jason. Peter, I'm wondering if I can just come in on this, because one of the things that's, that's um, you know, We've been in the crypto space for a while, and, and we, we we talk on stage about how amazing um, you know, blockchains are. And at some point, someone always asks, "But what about quantum?" And what they what they mean by that is code breaking, or the idea that that you can use this this quantum compute to break codes. And I, I think I just sort of finally understood for the first time from your description there what why that's actually a I mean, what, what that actually means. So is it, is it true then to say that um, quantum computers you know, are amazing things for particular types of applications, but the thing is, is that code breaking is one of those applications. Is that a, is that a fair summary? That, that, that's exactly the correct statement. They're used for very specific applications. Not any old application will be sped up. People often say, will my games be super awesome with an RTX quantum card? The answer is no but code breaking happens to be one of them, but not any code breaking. It's actually very specific uh, types of codes that happen to fit into this category of being vulnerable to quantum algorithms. And that happens to include RSA cryptography, uh, which is based on uh, integer factorization or rather the, 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 hard, the computational hardness of integer factorization, uh, which is where it derives its security from. And classically, that takes an astronomical amount of time. If I give you a one million digit number and say factorize it, it's incredibly hard. That happens to be one of the things that quantum computers can do. Similarly for the mathematical foundations of elliptic curve cryptography. Uh, but there are other cryptographic protocols that are not vulnerable. So our symmetric key cryptography systems, like um, the AES class of crypto systems, they are not compromised by quantum computers. Uh, it's actually just our existing public key crypto systems, but we also use those for digital signatures. And that's where it connects uh, back to the blockchain because digital signatures are what we use in the consensus mechanisms for everybody to validate transactions. I just want to jump in here and see what does this look like practically as an attack on a blockchain, right? So from what I hear from what you're saying and my understanding here is there's sort of two broad attacks that could take place. One attack is simply that quantum computers very fast can um, enter into the uh, consensus mechanism and effectively do some kind of 51% attack. That's, that's sort of one attack on the consensus mechanism itself. And on the other hand, there's much more of um, if 
our if private keys can be derived from public keys, so this is no longer a one-way function in asymmetric cryptography, then we can have people essentially impersonating signatures That's on a blockchain. Right. Now, they seem like quite different attacks to me. Is is one more likely than the other one to occur? Um, what what should we be worried about? Um, so I wasn't actually sure in what you said what the distinction was there because um, um, uh, in, in the consensus, it's all based on a consensus via digital signatures. Uh, so um, you could do a 51% attack in the sense of impersonating the other people that are meant to be uh, uh, validating the transaction and do it that way. Um, or you could uh, come in and just directly compromise other people's wallets because uh, because people's uh, public uh, wallet address is also just public keys. So you could do a direct attack and steal people's money by breaking an individual wallet's um, key. Um, or you could go and impersonate an, a consensus and make fraudulent transactions. But it's actually the same mechanism because they use the same cryptographic primitives. Okay, that, that makes sense. And it... I mean, this is interesting from the perspective of a quantum attacker then of um, where would you attack? What, what's the what's the most effective way to do this? Right. Because it seems that if you're just impersonating someone's signature for their particular wallet, um, you could attack Satoshi's wallet that everyone might be looking at, or you could um, effectively attack another wallet that someone might notice for quite a while, and you might be able to get away with this for a much longer right. period of time. So, yeah. so, so this all gets uh, into really interesting, much deeper considerations than just can I break a, uh, a public key? Um, keep in mind that there's a false uh, sort of understanding in the general public that quantum computers, when, when they're there, we give them a public key and boom, like half a second later, you've got the private keys and you're done. That isn't the case. Even with a fully functional quantum computer in the future, these these algorithms still take considerable processing time. It's just not age of the universe time. It's you know something more more realistic, but still considerable. So keep the following things in mind. It takes considerable time to to crack one of these codes, even on a quantum computer, but within the realm of possibility. Uh, secondly hugely expensive computers that very few people will have. So they'll be wanting to use them as wisely as possible. So then we have the game theoretic aspect coming into it. What's the optimal way of extracting value fraudulently from a blockchain? Well, if I have to falsify an entire consensus, which means breaking a whole bunch of keys, that'll obviously be much harder work than going in and directly attacking someone's wallet if I know that they happen to have a fair bit of cash stored in there. So uh, th th there's going to be a huge amount of game theoretic interplay here uh, in terms of what it is that the attacker is trying to do. Are they trying to steal money uh, or are they trying to undermine confidence in, in the system itself, which is also a way that you can extract value. If you undermine confidence in something, then, well, you could also just short it and extract value that way. Peter, can I just come in on this? Because I, I love just the, the the way that this sort of helps to sort of sharpen up our intuition about how the future might unfold. And um, one of the other one of the other sort of just practical questions that I've got is around um, like I I know that we've got experimental quantum computers. They're kind of a, the scientists have them, kind of maybe, and and it's not clear which scientists or how far advanced they are. But what's your sense of 
of who will have um, computers that can do these these types of. I mean, we've described them as an as an as an attack vector or as a as an assault weapon, right? Um, not as a regular, just you know, industrial bit of hardware that we're using for running the grid or or whatever it is, yeah. searching for aliens. Like, who is likely to have them? By when and why will they have them? And how will they be co-opted into these assault purposes or these nefarious yeah. purposes that we're describing? So, in terms of who's going to have them, um, they're the answer. You can be pretty confident as to who uh, is going to who that's going to be, be based on the current trajectory, which is. Uh, Almost certainly, China is going to be outpacing the United States in this, uh, but the United States will be, um, you know, the, in, in, in second place, followed by likely uh, the, the European countries, but they might be working in tandem with the United States if it's an alliance of that form. Um, in, in terms of when it's going to happen, well, that's really anybody's guess. I could, of course, be a bit cheeky here and say, well, I've given you the equations for the prediction market, so just ask the market. Um, but the reality is even the market has no idea and no insider really has a good concept of this either. Um, when it comes to actually trying to place a bet on this, if you, if you were going to actually try and use this hypothetical prediction market that we talked about to try and make money, um, it would be betting on inside information, really. That, that's what it would be coming down to. Um, who's making uh, behind-the-scenes leaps and bounds? That's really, really hard to gauge. But you'll you'll see all sorts of hype articles coming out in the papers talking about in the next few years blockchain is going to be invalidated. That is complete nonsense. Um, there's a lot of nuance to quantum computing. You'll see articles in the newspaper talking about you know uh, IBM has this you know X qubit device and now Google is moving towards a 100 qubit device. There are different categories of quantum computers. To get towards uh, breaking codes, we need what's called a universal quantum computer. In other words, this is the, a quantum computer version of what your desktop does. You can program it to do anything. All of these quantum computers that are being talked about in the media now, whether it be Google or China or whatever, these are all uh, not universal quantum computers that can be arbitrarily programmed. Uh, they are what are called noisy intermediate scale quantum computers. That is, they don't have error protection mechanisms. And by definition, they cannot be scaled up much further than they are until they have the ability to build in error correcting codes that are necessary to make them scalable. We can't do that at the moment. That, that's a huge technological jump. So when you when you just try and extrapolate the trajectory based on number of qubits in existence in a quantum device, that's not the right metric to use. It's not just number of qubits. It's how they're configured, what the architecture is, and how programmable it is. And we're, it, But we're talking at least a decade away before this poses a threat. So I hadn't heard that description before, Peter. That's, um, I mean, obviously, we're familiar in AI research between you know, AI-specific applications such as navigation or, or particular pattern recognitions and, you know, which is, you know, we're living with that right now and general purpose AI, which is, you know, decades in the in the future. And you, you just made the same point about quantum, that there are application-specific quantum computers because of the noisy error correction that we have to do on the processing um, and we'll kind of get there first. But this dream of a, a general quantum computer that is built for, 
um, I don't know, searching for aliens, but if I can get it, I can repurpose it to, to attack, um, mm-hmm. to, to break codes. You've just said that, I mean, did I just understand that correctly? You've just said that's unlikely. Is, is that well, the, 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 this goal, this goal of, a, of a fully universal quantum computer um, is totally within the realm of, of what we'll be able to do at some point. But that, that goal is probably a decade or two away. In the meantime, it's going to be highly specialized uh, devices that solve specific applications. So all of these results you've read about in, in like Nature and the newspapers and, and Science Magazine, uh, where they talk about quantum supremacy, this is the big buzzword they use, quantum supremacy, by which they mean a quantum device that can outperform by a significant margin the best possible class of computers. Um, what the, the layman doesn't realize from, from that headline is that these quantum computers that they're talking about can only solve one specific task, and it's a completely useless one to, for any practical use. It serves no purpose other than it happens to be something that no classical computer can do. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I just wanted to pull out to your, to your point before about the implications of quantum computing for blockchain. Uh, in the article I read from initially, it says a smart contract isn't very smart if it's likely to be invalidated before maturation. So what we're seeing is blockchains designing coordination systems, including smart contracting, that goes well into the future. And you're saying in the future, this quantum capability may be possible and may actually be able to invalidate the contracts. Yeah. And so this is exactly why, even though this type of quantum technology that poses a direct uh, threat is significantly far off, Nonetheless, it's something that you need to think about now because um, when, when you're talking about any kind of asset, if you think about it in the usual forward pricing model terms, well, the, the present day price, the spot price is always determined by discounting its future value. That's just an inescapable reality in any kind of asset. And so, yes, if you've got a, a smart contract and it's maturing in 20 years, and we know that in 20 years this technology will exist well, then you'd be kind of stupid to, to enter that kind of contract. Um, so, so this is why um, it, it is still relevant to think about these considerations now uh, because, uh, because value needs to be maintained, not just you know, immediately traded back and forth over the short term. And so before we jump into the quantum crypto economics uh, a little further, what are typical approaches to quantum resistance? Right. So, so this is interesting now because um, the moment that people realized that our, our conventional public key crypto systems can be potentially compromised by Shor's algorithm by future quantum computers, uh, it immediately alarmed people, especially uh, you know, defense and intelligence agencies where they know that adversarial signals intelligence agencies are storing uh, encrypted data that they can't decrypt now in the hope that they might be able to down the line, they realize, oh, we've got a problem. They might be able to decipher all of this. So uh, it immediately started people uh, thinking along the lines of how do we make ourselves robust against these quantum attacks? Now, you'll hear a lot of talk about quantum cryptography um, as a, uh, a completely secure mechanism for communicating. It's true, but it's obviously never going to be nearly as practical as communicating 
classically using the internet because it requires quantum infrastructure, which is always going to be more expensive. So it instigated this whole new field of what's called post-quantum cryptography, which is the idea of uh, combining these ideas that we discussed earlier, that not every type of algorithm can be uh, sped up by a quantum computer, or that not uh, every type of problem can be solved by a quantum computer. So the goal here is to find new classical uh, cryptographic algorithms that normal computers use, but are built on mathematical foundations that quantum computers are not believed to be able to crack. So when it comes to uh, digital signatures, um, this is already essentially a solved problem using um, an area called hash-based cryptography. Uh, hash functions, we uh, understand, are very robust against quantum attack. Uh, but uh, even though uh, we know how to build digital signatures uh, this way, it's something that hasn't been fully explored, uh, but most importantly, it hasn't been standardized. So NIST, the National Institute for Science and Technology in the United States, which standardizes cryptographic algorithms that we use today, they're currently in the process of standardizing a post-quantum cryptographic suite. Um, and once these things are properly standardized and you can download you know, a software library to use in your Python or whatever program that just interchanges, uh, substitutes the underlying protocols uh, for uh, standardized post-quantum ones, when we reach that point, you can expect this massive transition to take place. But at the moment, it's not standardized. It's all over the place. Um, it raises questions about interoperability if different people are uh, deploying these ideas in different ways. Uh, but, but it is a, a very, very fast-paced field of research on its own. Peter, when, when you said a, a, a transition there is going to have to happen, um, I mean, that's pretty worrying from a bunch of economists' perspective who are looking at blockchain governance um, and blockchain governance struggling to sort out some relatively simple problems. So I think the, the thing, what you've set out here is that we've kind of got an arms race going on, right? We've got um, advances in quantum computing, we are likely to have eventually standardized advances in post-quantum cryptography. Um, even once we have that technology, um, the question is, will existing blockchains easily be able to um, update themselves? Um, mm. And I think it's just a, a really inter interesting test of governance of a lot of these blockchain systems. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important point, right? Um, that... Um, it's not just can the underlying cryptographic protocols be compromised because they're all essentially using the same ones, but there are so many different um, implementations and the way blockchains are designed that affect um, how practical practical it is, for example, to to fork uh, across uh, and make major changes to the underlying architecture or substitute in different cryptographic protocols. So this is now a whole nuanced thing on its own. Um, if you look at the different design considerations in, the, in, in different blockchain implementations, you'll inevitably, uh, if you look into the details, find that some, it might be far more practical to do a fork and just substitute everything across, whereas others, it might be much more difficult. That's also now a consideration in terms of the forward value or the, the forward relevance of those uh, technologies. Yeah, it's a fantastic point in terms of looking at the layers uh, of blockchains as socio-technical systems and the coordination and governance, the software development and the rules of the protocol. And then what you lot on this call have, 
have done is kind of use the uh, financial market aspects uh, to sort of develop an approach to quantum resistance. So what you call quantum crypto economics is speculation that the yield curves on cryptographic assets could act as market predictors for when this is likely to take place, which could in principle be securitized into instruments for forecasting or betting upon developments in quantum technology, i.e. pricing quantum risk premiums. Right. So, so let me explain what, what, what I meant by that. So, so let's consider a hypothetical um, cryptographic asset, and it's a smart contract, which is a, a bond. And it has a maturation date of some point in the future. So, you know, the, this, this smart contract says in 10 years' time, you get uh, this many Bitcoin or whatever the case may be. So if you think about that just in the norm, in terms of normal treasury bonds, well, uh, uh, you have a yield curve uh, that is strongly influenced by the default risk on the uh, person issuing uh, the bond, whether it be the government or anyone else. And if you think that they're going to default, then all of a sudden it doesn't have any forward value. So looking at the, at the, at the, the, the perception of the, the future value given by the, the, the market-determined yield curve, if you look at the differential there at some point in the future between what you think it's going to be, so for example, you think, oh, this is a huge new development coming in quantum computing, and I actually think that next week there's going to be a major reveal of this company with a major quantum computer that can undermine this particular blockchain, nobody else realizes it, then you can bet on that differential, right? And um, in, in the same way with, with normal uh yield curves so that that that's sort of the, the the central concept there but it is of course far more uh complex than that it's, it's, it's usually oversimplified because uh there are so many other factors that affect the forward value of these of these assets i mean we all know how volatile cryptographic assets are these days anyway the market doesn't really uh, have much of a clue whatsoever how to properly value these things so um, even though you might be able to derive a mathematical model for price differentials in, in, in forward values of these things, extracting the signal from the noise, the noise being all the other influencing factors, uh, might end up mean that it, meaning that it's not a particularly valuable indicator at all. Sinclair, did you have more to add to that? Yeah, well, I was going to say the financial markets are, are actually astonishingly good predictors generally. Um, so uh, prediction markets, which of course have fallen out of favor over the last few years, are, are, are like really good measures of people's current expectations as to what's going to happen in the future going forward. And I kind of think that this is the way we should be actually looking about and thinking about all sorts of threats that come on to the, 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 the blockchain space. Um, I think it, it was, was, was Darcy who said before, whenever you stand up on a stage, at some point somebody always says to you, oh, but what about quantum? All your money is going to get stolen. Um, and, and, well, it may or may not get stolen. Um, as it is right now, uh, we, we have a lot of people breaking into exchanges and what have you, stealing the money anyway. So, you know, we need to move beyond that. Um, and part of the problem really is is that you can't really steal a whole lot of money with nobody noticing. Mm. And when you steal a whole lot of money and somebody notices, that actually impacts, A, the value of the chain overall or is going to impact the value of money 
on the chain. Mm-hmm. Now, without getting into an argument, is Bitcoin money or isn't it, and all this sort of stuff. Nonetheless, if somehow a quantum computer broke into the blockchain and A, stole a whole bunch of Bitcoin, everybody would immediately notice. Or conversely, if they started fraudulently spending on the chain, everybody would notice. And that fraudulent spending on the chain, we would notice immediately as inflation. And not just inflation like, you know, prices are going up because prices go up and down all the time. That's relative prices changing. But if all of a sudden the market was flooded with, with say, Bitcoin or ETH or Sol or whatever it is that they, they were breaking into, we would actually notice very quickly that prices would start rising very dramatically. So one of the indicators of a, of, of, of a successful quantum attack would be unexplained inflation. Uh, uh, um, on that particular blockchain. And I kind of think that is the the thing we should be looking out for, we should be worrying about, we should be thinking about. And and and, and, and Peter and others have kind of written up a, a very cute little model, I have to say. Um, I was there when it was written, so it's a very cute model. Um, have actually written up a very cute little model kind of saying, well, if you are worried about a quantum attack, this is what you should be thinking about. This is what you should look for. Um, and as yet, we haven't seen it. Um, yeah. And, and the, other, the, the other nice thing that I really like about what Peter has been saying is that um, it's not going to be immediate. It's not going to be sudden. And if our story of financial markets is correct, we're not going to be caught by surprise. We're actually going to be seeing it happen as it starts to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely true because it's not as though overnight we're going to go from nobody having quantum computers to there being enough of them to cause massive disturbance. Um, Combine that with the fact of the slow runtime, you know, it'll take enormous amount of time for the infrastructure to to build up and for, for enough simultaneous attacks to exist. Yes, it'll be a very, very gradual progression, uh, not something overnight. So it, it won't take you by surprise, I don't think. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, speaking to Peter, uh, well, listening to Peter in this podcast and also having spoken to Peter before, is that I, like all every other layperson, kind of had this idea that one day we're just going to wake up and the quantum age would be upon us and all our money would be gone and all this sort of stuff. I've, I've actually been quite heartened by the fact that, A, um, you won't be able to break every single chain at the same time. Um, so that, that, that's really a good thing. And the other thing is that it's actually, it, it's, it's not going to be as fast and instantaneous as people kind of have in mind. Um, so um, I, I used to be very worried about, you know, quantum computing and quantum attacks and all this sort of stuff, because, you know, I just, you know, you read in the papers and you think, oh my God, it's, it's you know, we're, 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 we're under threat here. But in actual fact, it's going to be slow. It's going to be observable. We're going to see it happen. Um, we're going to be in arms, you know, we are going to be at some point in an arms race. There is also um, a natural um, pushback against that. If people do start noticing that um, there's a very small number of uh, compromised keys coming, coming into existence because of a presumed quantum computer, well, the immediate thing you can do is start diversifying your assets across a large number of wallets Keeping in mind that it's only worth an attacker doing something if there's a net return. So if the, if the cost of investing into cracking a key is you crack someone's wallet and you get 50 cents, 
having spent a million dollars worth of quantum compute time, they're not going to do it, right? So, so yes. you, can, you can see what the, what the natural response of the market is to this, is they'll start diversifying, uh, um, and, and that will be a valid strategy to use until the point comes where quantum computers are dirt cheap and everybody has them, right? And that's a long way off. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think, you know, we're we're back in the early days of blockchain when you were trying to explain to people what the security implications were. And I used to say to people, you know, to break a blockchain, which had never actually ever happened and still really hasn't happened, um, you need to have the kind of resources and the bloody mindedness of being a James Bond villain. Mm. You know, and and we actually know. Look, I, I don't think there are actual James Bond villains out there, but you know the the kind of of, of resource available to you, and just the, the willingness to break things for the sake of breaking it, which I kind of think is is actually an astonishingly rare thing. So as long as we've got wise, rational actors out there, um, right now, the foreseeable future, we're we're kind of looking okay. So so, so one point of uh, difference there. Uh, when it comes to James Bond type of villains, uh, that's what I think of those as nation states acting adversarial uh, adversarially. So, if you consider China, for example, which is you know uh, making their own national blockchain, but to the exclusion of all others, which is strictly banned. Now, suppose that the rest of the world is switching over to um, to, to the other competing blockchains. Uh, they can immediately strengthen their own financial position by undermining confidence in competing ones. So, so if you treat nation-state actors as these James Bond villains who are trying to be disruptive, well, that's what signals intelligence agencies do all the time, the disrupt and destroy approach to, to, to undermining confidence in adversaries. Yep, yep, no, that, that, that is a good point here. Nation-states. Always a problem, which, of course, in the crypto, we want to get away from the problem of nation states. But uh, um, Darcy, you. Of course. Um, so, Sink, I, I appreciate your optimism around all of this, and, and I'm optimistic as well. I am curious, however, and I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, I mean, we're talking about 2022 really is the year when we're probably going to have a huge number of bridges across chains. We're going to see lots of um, wrapped everything on every other chain. Um, I am curious what that means for the sort of systematic risk across these blockchain networks. So if you undermine, um, let's say you can uh, impersonate a signature on Ethereum does it, and you don't know which wallet has been compromised. It could be any wallet. Um, in effect, that might compromise all of the bridges that those um, wrapped tokens are going back across. Um, so, so I think that there are a lot of a lot of things to think about. But what I did want to ask you, Peter, was a lot of the relationship between uh, quantum and blockchain is seen as negative. Um, that you know, quantum is attacking yeah. blockchain, as we've talked about here. Um, what are the complementarities here? So you've spoken about the, the potential for quantum um, to solve particular problems. Do you see any opportunities for how blockchain might aid in that? And yeah. what I'm thinking here is we're, we've done a bunch of work in, for instance, data markets. So you can use um, you can use blockchains, of course, to tokenize and incentivize the pooling of data. Um, a lot of quantum compute might rely on very large amounts of data. Um, I'm curious about what opportunities do you see with quantum um, and how yeah, blockchain might um, might aid in that. So, so, so one that immediately springs to mind here, and uh, and 
there's only been a very little amount of research done in this area. But uh, as you know, uh, one of the huge, hugely inefficient aspects of current blockchain implementations is um, is in the validation of transactions via the various consensus mechanisms. So originally, I mean, the first implementation in Bitcoin, we, we know what a disaster that is in terms of energy consumption. And now one of the big um, you know, transitions that's happening is finding better and more efficient um, consensus mechanisms so that our blockchains can process thousands of transactions a second and compete with other payment systems like, you know, replace Visa and MasterCard and that kind of thing. Um, so actually, there has been um, some initial research done on uh, using quantum communications instead of classical communications to have much more efficient consensus mechanisms. Um, so, uh, but of course, that requires different underlying infrastructure. It requires like a quantum internet uh, where you communicate quantum information rather than classical information. That is one area of research that's been uh, it's been done. Um, another. Uh, area where it's complementary but in a highly questionable way is uh, speeding up um, the inverse hashing protocols that are used for certain proof-of-work mining, uh, like in the original Bitcoin. So a quantum computer can, in principle, not just clean sweep, produce heaps of cash using uh, by, by speeding up inverse hashing, but it can at most quadratically improve it. So um, you can uh, you can you can speed things up um, somewhat. But as we move away from that kind of uh, uh, consensus mechanism based on proof of work, that's actually less relevant anyway. Um, but, but but certainly when it comes to, to having uh, future quantum computers producing things of, of high value that we want to um, uh, that we that we want to commit to, to, to blockchain, that, that's harder to see what that, that interaction is going to be. Jason has his hand up. I do, Frida. So like, I, I want to, um, this has been absolutely fascinating and we could dig further into all of these questions, but I want to go on to it and I'll change the topic a little bit. Um, you've written a book recently, um, mm. the, the, a classic, just magnificent big brain book uh, about um, the quantum internet. And I, I want to sort of get you to help us to understand what that is because um, internet, as we all know, was invented, um, you know, back in 1983 or whenever, or, or 1962. Um, but it was a communications device. It was a it was intended as a way to string together the um, a bunch of nodes to enable a distributed communications device that could withstand a nuclear attack. So I mean, it was it was a, an advanced telephone system basically. And then the internet was when we started realizing we could send messages to each other, and those messages were, you know. And, you know, and here we are. And but th this idea of the internet is evolving beyond a communications infrastructure to a compute infrastructure. I think the first time all of us, I mean, um, or at least some of us sort of got a, a sense of what that was, was the Ethereum blockchain. This idea of a of, of blockchain as a distributed world computer and all of the nodes performing distributed computation. And that's kind of how I've understood what you're describing here is, you know, as, as the quantum internet, as, as this idea that um, when we sort of start to think of the internet as a compute infrastructure, and then we ask what type yeah. of compute we can bring. Have, have, am I on the right track with, with this concept? Yeah. So, so, so here's my uh, my take on that with qu the quantum internet. So, the, the big difference between a quantum computer 
and a classical computer is that uh, as you increase the number of CPU cores in a classical computer, um, the, the, the computational power of a classical computer scales linearly with the number of transistors you have, right? Um, and it doesn't matter whether they're connected by the internet or not. Whether you have a supercomputer distributed around or everybody's working individually on their own nodes, the collective power of all of those transistors is just the sum of the parts. And the reason we connect them is efficiency, like cloud-based um, uh, infrastructure means that you can have supercomputing power in your mobile device by offloading it, right? So there are all of these convenience aspects to it. With quantum computing connected by a quantum internet, the story is now different. Because if you have multiple quantum computers and you network them together using not the classical internet, but by quantum communications infrastructure, that is uh, infrastructure that can communicate qubits, quantum bits, instead of classical bits, you can make these multiple distributed quantum devices act collectively as one larger one. Now, a quantum computer doesn't have this relationship that the power grows linearly with the, with the sum of the parts. It can grow exponentially with the number of qubits that it has. So if you have two quantum computers acting in isolation, uh, uh, working independently, that combined power is the sum of the parts. But if you're able to unify them with quantum communications infrastructure, then that sum goes into the exponent instead. So what this means is if, the, if you consider a future world of quantum computers similar to what we have today, big quantum data warehouses all over the world, Google, Amazon, everywhere. Now, if you unify them with quantum communications infrastructure, um, you can see that you get something enormously more valuable uh, and more powerful than those different data centers working in isolation. So that exponential gain you get for unifying uh, via a quantum uh, internet, um, that gain, that, that differential is your economic incentive in laying out quantum communications infrastructure to link them all together. And since that's exponential, that means that there's a pretty strong economic motive to build a future quantum internet that has the ability to interconnect quantum computers in the way that we can currently internet connect classical computers. So, so that's incredible. I mean, that's like that's a um, that's a world in where the the quantum internet then is just one vast compute resource where that's the, right. the the in, the internet part of it is just the internal messaging that's that's enabling the compute resource to 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 hold. okay so um, i mean that sounds absolutely incredible from a productivity perspective and from a compute perspective and you know compute basically becomes an infinite resource that is free um, what is what is what does ownership look like in that because i mean i think you know sink and darcy and, and myself and, and kelsey are just looking at this with their little economics brains going um, it's just like a sharing is, economy. Is, is, how, is that do you, a how do you good? Is that a, yeah. I mean, how, um, how, how would that work? So, see, so yes, in the book, we actually, um, the, my book, The Quantum Internet, we actually uh, derived um, the, these fundamental principles. So, uh, the, the optimal way to do it um, is you make an arbitrage free, free assumption on the, on the cost of qubits. So, imagine we're all using the same type of qubits for simplicity. Then we make the assumption that. Um, uh, that, that the dollar cost of a qubit um, is, is the same, no matter how many of them you have. However, um, 
the computational power of them grows exponentially when they're unified. Okay, so um, this assumption that the, the dollar value is the same means that you can drive an arbitrage-free pricing model that everybody should get a timeshare of the unified assets uh, according to the proportion of the, the, the physical number of qubits that they contribute to this global meta corner computer thing, right? So, so if I uh, there are a thousand qubits in existence distributed around the world and I contribute 10 of them, then I get that percentage of the timeshare of the unified device. Um, uh, th th that's how the timesharing agreement works out uh, under an arbitrage-free model. Uh, but then you'll see that me contributing to this global computer and getting that proportion of the timeshare, well, that, that proportion, that, that's, a, that's a fraction, that's linear. But the computational gain by contributing and getting that fraction back is now that fraction of an exponential. So everybody's better off by contributing to this globally unified device and receiving a timeshare in proportion to how much they contribute. And under that model, everybody's better off. So if you could make compatible uh, hardware that was all able to interconnect, then it would immediately create a huge market incentive for everybody to be building qubits, contributing them to this big unified corner computer, getting their timeshare, and everybody would be astronomically better off in doing so, but far more so than you would in, a, in, in, in the context of normal um, classical computing. That's incredible. So look, just, I mean, just to um, I mean, ask the, the practical question here. So when what you've described is theoretically possible, um, what's the pathway by which we'd get there? Like how, how, yeah, what, what has to happen for that to happen? So, so for that to happen, okay, so I mentioned the fact that they need to be compatible, right? Because uh, at the moment, there are so many different competing physical platforms for how to build quantum computers that we, we, even the experts, haven't got a clue what a future quantum computer is going to look like. Some companies, like SciQuantum in Silicon Valley, are placing their bet on photonics. Other companies, well, you've read about the Google quantum supremacy. They've got these, um, these completely different architectures. Um, uh, there are others building superconducting qubits, that, and, and none of these are compatible. We don't know which one is going to win the race. However, when it reaches the point where there are clear, there's a clear contender for what the proper way to build large-scale quantum computers is, Here's what we need to do. Instead of building a huge stadium-sized mainframe, what we need to do is build them on a production line as modularized interconnectable units, just like we do with conventional desktop PCs. Think of a desktop PC as being a small-scale quantum computer. You can mass produce them on a production line and pump them out, but they have the ability to interconnect using, say, fiber optic cables and engage in quantum communications using uh, photonics. Then you just pump out these modularized units. Everybody can buy them. Everybody can plug them in and everybody can contribute. And the more contribute, the more you get back and the economic payoff is enormous. So the long-term goal is, first of all, figure out what the contending, the winning contender is for, for how to build a large-scale device. Secondly, make uh, finite-sized, highly modularized units with the ability to interconnect and then pump the hell out of them off production lines. 
and then own them with a DAO. <laughs> is the, uh, yeah. The next, I, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sort of sort of thinking through this and we're seeing everything is a DAO at the moment and this sounds like an incredible piece of potentially shared infrastructure that needs to be um, built and coordinated and invested in and um, shared ownership of and so on. Um, yeah. That obviously sounds like a distraction, but um, that's... But, but gotta... what, I'm, what I'm liking about Peter's story is that we, we know there's all these incredible network effects from blockchain and international, all this sort of stuff. What he's saying is these network effects are going to be on steroids mm. um, if, 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 if we have quantum computing. That's um, right. Underpinning all of so, this. So, so, so let's take this back to an analogy with this whole Web 3.0 kind of concept whereby um, anybody, you know, can contribute a node and they're incentivized, right? They're monetarily incentivized to, to contribute nodes and the whole thing becomes a, a big self-incentivized network that anybody contribute to. If you can take that, that same principle uh, but now replace it with quantum nodes and assuming the communications infrastructure exists to enable this, then the payoff is following a different scaling function. Instead of it now being linear returns, it's now exponential returns. And so the, the whole um, economic model that, that would be built on top of this Web 3.0 philosophy um, would have uh, increasing returns according to how much of it is in existence. And, and what that means, even if other people uh, contribute more nodes, you get increasing returns because the, the collective payoff is exponential, not linear. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, just one last very silly question. I, I know this is going to be a, a complete layperson question, so please don't roll your eyes. Um, we said before, or you said before that people are building quantum resistant applications and stuff now, but you've also said that we don't know what future quantum computers are going to look like. Um, so how are we building resistance to something that we don't quite know? Yeah, is? So, so, so this comes down to the field of computational complexity theory. The idea that you can categorize different types of algorithms into different complexity classes. So if you consider, um, for example, the addition of uh, two numbers of length n, um, how many basic uh, elementary operations do you need to do to add two numbers of, of length n, well, it scales linearly with n, right? You add them one by one and do the carry longhand. If you, so it's linear with n. If you're doing multiplication, it's quadratic with n. And you can extrapolate this and categorize algorithms according to different types of scaling characteristics and complexity classes. And the idea of post-quantum cryptography is we have a well-defined definition of of the complexity class of problems that quantum computers can solve efficiently. The goal is to find cryptographic protocols that are based on uh, mathematical problems that we can prove sit outside that, that complexity class. And if you can prove mathematically uh, that it sits outside that complexity class, that, then, then, you're, then you're fine. The problem is that uh, integer factorization, factorization happens to sit inside the complexity class of problems that quantum computers can solve, but outside the complexity class of problems that classical computers can solve, which is why we've been safe in the past, but we're not going to be safe in the future. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. So blockchains that claim to be quantum resistant, is that a non-provable statement? Um, 
No, so so for the purpose of digital signatures, which is really the important primitive that we're talking about for, for this purpose, um, there we, we do know um, how to build quantum-resistant uh, public key uh, signatures, not encryption, but signatures, and that's hash-based cryptography. Um, the problem is, uh, so the, the fundamental hash-based cryptographic protocol is called a Lamport signature, and uh, it, it, even though it's quantum-proof, it has this horrible caveat that it's a one-time signature. So you can use it to sign something once, and after that, the key is compromised and you can't use it again. So you can see that this isn't going to be very useful for communicating with someone uh, who you haven't met before on the internet, and you know lots of people need to engage with that person. You have to throw away the signature every single time. So, but we we need reusable keys. So what they do is they've taken this idea and moved on to what's called uh, an extended Merkle tree um, digital signature scheme, where you have one such one-time signature. And it's built into a Merkle tree data structure whereby all of the leaf nodes are a key pairs um, that all ultimately derive back to a master key such that you can have a single public key um, from which a whole bunch of other keys can be derived and thereby providing reusability. But there are all sorts of trade-offs here. Um, and it still means finite reusability. Um, and also the problem is that there's a huge memory footprint associated with these public keys compared to uh, conventional elliptic curves. So like a key pair for a single one-time use Lamport signature is like 256 kilobits to, to sign off on a 256-bit checksum. Um, that, that's a huge overhead. Then you factor in the whole Merkle tree data structure on top of it. It's an enormous overhead. So there are still trade-offs, even though in principle it's a solved problem. Um, there are other competing considerations undermining practicality. And this is part of that whole standardization process, how to optimally implement all this in the most efficient way with the least footprint and so on, with all these different considerations. Peter, your expertise in this domain is uh, so impressive and we're so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you. And it's nice to hear a largely optimistic perception, I guess, about uh, the future of quantum and blockchain in the face of uh, quantum FUD, as Jason puts it in the chat, which we can all see. Uh, so thank you so much to our distinguished guest, Dr. Peter Rode, alongside Professor Jason Potts, Dr. Darcy Allen, and Professor Sinclair Davidson. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch at rmitblockchain.io. Thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Sinclair. Thanks, Darcy.